No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to join in and be part of the conversation at 888-627-6008. Or you can uh, Skype your questions into us, um, and we'd be happy to answer them. Anyway, tonight is a special night because we have my dear friend uh, Maria Sanchez on the show tonight. And as you probably remember if you listen to the show regularly, Maria was my co-host for six years. I can't believe it. We, she, she, she really took the show from infancy into, into a, a, a really great show. And she was such an important part of the progression of the show. We're so happy to have her back. And guess what? She's no longer Maria. She's now Dr. Sanchez. So rather than tell you all the wonderful things about this woman, like I usually introduce our guests, I'm going to let her tell us what she's been doing lately. Maria, thanks so much. Welcome back to the show. And before we get started, let me tell you that you've got fan mail. You know that we we send out an e-blast every every week explaining what the show will be. And we did we did one that said she's back this week. And I don't know if you remember Keith Silver, a man, a very sweet man that you met when you were in Washington. But yes. he was like, welcome back. Welcome Aww. back, Maria. So so there's your, your fan mail. So tell us, what have you been doing except laying around in California <laughs> for the last several months? So first of all, Michael, thank you for the honor to be able to be a guest on your program, oh, Shadow Politics, and about something that's so very important and really near and dear and a passion of mine, which we'll get into. Um, but I want to offer publicly my condolences on the passing of your brother. I am so terribly sorry for you, your family, and most importantly, his family. Yeah, and we mentioned it briefly last week. He was a great man who did great things, uh, changed the lives of hundreds of people in Appalachia by, you know, taking this little college and 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 making it um, uh, increasing the enrollment by 70 percent and adding over 800,000 square feet to the college and and opening a new, you know, in, improving a, a, a remote campus. It really did a lot. And. And uh, not to mention, they was an Air Force pilot. He flew F-111s, I mean, and was a major who was honorably discharged and was vice president of the largest community college in the world. 
Community College for the Air Force. So, yes, thank you, Maria. He will be sorely missed by by many people. He he lived a great life, and all I can tell you is that he he passed doing what he loved to do. He wanted to fly from the day he got out of the 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 Air Force. He mentioned it all the time that he wanted to fly, wanted to fly, wanted to fly, and finally he did. He got his his. You have to have a. You can fly a, a military plane, but you still have to have a private you have private pilot's license so he had to go through all this stuff to get a private pilot's license which he ultimately did and unfortunately we don't know what happened yet the ntsb is investigating but yeah it was a tragic accident and, and um thank you so much for your condolences of course uh, and and what have you been doing i mean you've been doing so much you you you've gotten your you know i've always admired you for so many things maria but one of them is that that you know you're a lifelong learner, uh, and that that you're you know um, you were still going to graduate school. You've gotten your doctorate. Uh, you're trying to use your degree. It looks like to do something good in the world, which is you know wonderful, right? Because when we all when we when we go back to college when we when we start college when we we're kids, it's all about you know getting a job and, and getting ahead and you know, but now it's just wonderful to see that you've gotten this degree and you've taken on this uh, uh, responsibility of uh, being the executive director. Is that what you call yourself? Of of Stop the Cut. You've started this nonprofit organization, Stop the Cut, and it's really, really, really important. Well, what's thank you for that, Michael. And it's interesting because when I started with you as your co-host on the program, was right before I went back to school to get my first master's degree in clinical psychology. And then I got another master's in media psychology. And then I defended my dissertation on December 1st for my PhD in psychology with an emphasis in media and having been a talk radio host for 30 years now, and then having this these degrees in psychology Media psychology is a relatively new field, and people say, well, geez, what, what is it? And it's we study technology and its effect on the user, uh, the psychological effect, those little black mirrors that we have, either from an iPhone or an Android or to a tablet or a laptop or a desktop or what have you, and how is that affecting us psychologically? And it's it's kind of scary and I won't go into the details of that, but because eradicating female genital mutilation has been a lifelong passion of mine, which I first learned about 25 years ago, I had a program on national public radio NPR and my guest at the time, he's a Harvard law graduate. He went with president Obama to Harvard law school and he founded a nonprofit to eradicate male circumcision in Berkeley, California. And I had him on the program because female genital mutilation was in the news at the time. And he was telling me that it's very similar because it's destroying genital integrity and all of that. But that was the first that I dug into it. Now, fast forward, this man, Stephen Savota is his name, and I are still colleagues. We're still friends. We collaborate. And when I decided to start my nonprofit in California, as you mentioned, it's uh, Stop the Cut eradicating female genital mutilation. He was one of the first people I reached out to because again, we've been collaborating for decades now. 
And he was like, I wish you wouldn't narrow it just to female, but okay. So in December, he featured me on the cover of their newsletter because he talks to people about eradicating male circumcision. So it's kind of to the choir that I was able to give my message about this is what I'm doing for the, the female aspect of it. And um, I've been, I was actually flattered that he chose to honor me that way, knowing how strongly he feels about male circumcision. So um, I, I don't know about you, Michael, but I did circumcise my three sons, which is one of my greatest regrets. And that's why female uh, genital mutilation exists, mostly because it's culture and tradition. It has nothing to do with religion, which people think it does. And it has nothing to do with anything other than this is the way it's been and that's why we do it kind of thinking. And my dad was circumcised. My brothers were circumcised. Their father, my children's father was circumcised. That's what you did. You circumcised your kids. And then I've discovered later, no, you don't have to do that. And to my, I have two brothers and one of them had two sons and he chose not to circumcise his sons. So I've seen it within my own family that these things can stop. And that's what we're hoping to do with female genital mutilation. Well, I, I, I have a question for you, Maria, because I got, I got to tell you, I really don't see, uh, I mean, I, I see the obvious connection between the two, but female genital mutilation uh, is so much more barbaric. In Correct. My, in, in, you know, it's just, it, it's horrible. And I would argue with you that it's also, besides being cultural, a way to hold down women. I mean, yes. it's a way to subjugate women. And I got to tell you, when when Maria, when you first brought this up to me and we had, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who the guest was. Yes. But we had a woman who was involved in this internationally. I didn't want to do it. I just, it was so awkward for me. Uh, I'm the dad of, of two girls and, you know, and it was just awkward. I'm an old guy. I didn't want to talk about this on the air. But then you told me what the numbers were mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe it. I so could it, not believe that and that's there are that many me. women yeah. Yeah, that suffer from this. And I got to tell you, since you, since we've taken this up, and since, you know, I went out on the mall, we did that thing out on the mall and stuff in mm -hmm. Washington. Mm -hmm. My wife is a librarian in Fairfax County, Virginia, and she says she knows girls that have been sent back high immigrant population in, at her school. Mm -hmm. And 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 she knows girls that have been sent back to whatever their their country, country. of origin mm -hmm. was uh, and and. And they've had it done. Now, tell me how. When you say it's a cultural thing, what culture is it? Is it you so? Know? It's practiced in uh, over thirty countries in the world. And to let our listeners know, female genital mutilation is uh, one of four procedures. They they call them stage one through four, where any and all genital skin tissue is cut off. Either the, the first one is cutting off the clitoris, the second one is cutting off that and labia minora, and then the third one is cutting off that, labia minora, labia majora, and sewing them shut. And then the fourth one is pricking, bruising, burning, cutting. And all four are deemed female genital mutilation. And it's interesting because, or they call it FGM for short, 
It's also known as female genital cutting. And people prefer, some people prefer using that term because they say it's less pejorative. And I say, bullshit. Let's call it what it's it's calling. It's not just cutting. You're mutilating. These young girls, and it starts from six months to about 15 years of age that girls are cut. And it, it happens all over the world. And it happens in the United States of America and the United Kingdom and the European Union. It's not an over, over there problem. But by mutilating, what we say is they can, especially if they go through the third form, they can barely urinate. They can hardly menstruate. Don't talk about intercourse. They usually have to go to the hospital from the tearing that occurs. And in childbirth, the mortality rate, it often kills the mother and the child because there's not an opening for the baby to pass through. Well, and you know what? I mean, we say, we talk about how this happens to women, but really more often it happens to children, right? I mean, correct. It it's almost always children. Yeah. yeah it, it happens to one of their children. And, and, you know, and it's just horrible. And it goes back to what, what, when I look at the problem, it seems to me that it, it, it's born in great ignorance. You know, I remember, growing up, you know, that I was raised in, in, in mostly by two crazy Italian women, my mother and my grandmother. And my grandmother, you know, believed that women should not know anything about sex. You know, the, 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 and they used to lie to them about things, you know, and, and because, right, they, they, they feared uh, uh, pregnancy so much out of wedlock and things like that. And, and just that ignorance um, um, you know, this seems to be the most extreme form of that, you know, that they think that somehow they're keeping women pure or something. I, I don't know. Well, there is that because if, if a, a female has been cut, it's guaranteed that you're going to be marrying a virgin. And right. they usually get a higher dowry if they're cut because they're more valuable. Right. And so there, there is an incentive financially for the family to, to do that. But we should mention that nationally and internationally, it's recognized as a human rights violation. It's child abuse and it's yeah. gender-based violence. But interestingly enough, it's the females that perpetuate it. It's yeah, the mothers course. on their daughters. Of course. It's, it's, and that's what ends up happening psychologically, the trauma that the girls go through. I've, so I know a fair amount of survivors, and they say that they would look at their mother who was either sitting on them to hold them down or was in the room watching the aunties hold each limb and the legs apart and thinking, you're the very person that's supposed to protect me. Right. And yet you're subjugating me to this. Mostly, we should also mention that it's done without anesthesia. It's not done oh. in the hospital. It's usually done in the bush. And it's done with rusty razor blades, scissors, or shards of glass. And the girls usually black out from the pain. And I then think... when they come to bleeding profusely, of course, some of them die from bleeding to death. It's so barbaric. It is really, it's so barbaric. And, and you so, know what? But guess what, Michael? People listening might think, oh my God, you know, mostly Americans are pretty ignorant on the subject, which is nobody's fault, which Absolutely. is part of my mission is, is to get the word out. 
because it is an uncomfortable conversation, as you mentioned. But 500,000 females in the United States have been cut, but globally, 200 million, um, million women have been cut in the world. Every 10 or 11 seconds, a girl's getting cut some, somewhere. And by the way, the District of Columbia has the second highest rate of cutting in the United States. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. There are 10 states and in the District, District of Columbia, Columbia correct. that don't have a law against this. Correct. Now, tomorrow, tomorrow, there's going to be a hearing to pass legislation. I know the people of the District of Columbia, and I know this legislation, you know, I, I would be shocked to see if this, this legislation doesn't pass. I'm sure they'll pass it. Uh, how did the legislation come about, Maria? Did your organization or some other organization propose it? Do you know? So I don't know the genesis of what the District of Columbia did other than that Maryland and Virginia do have legislation enacted and against it. And because of that, it's possible that girls were being brought from those states into the District of uh, Columbia where it's not uh, illegal. So right. um, bringing somebody across state lines, that's the, there is a federal law in effect that started in 1996 and a Detroit, Michigan judge threw it out in 2017. There were two physicians that were doing it in hospital settings, cutting girls. And he said that the federal law had overstepped the jurisdiction. So um, the folks that I know here in the United States rewrote the legislation and Donald Trump, believe it or not, signed it into law. It's the Stop FGM Act of 2020. He signed it into law on January 5th. And of course, we all know what happened the next day. So it never got any notoriety that a federal law was now back in force. But this, because the states, the, the 10 states and the District of Columbia don't have it, there's lots of slippery slopes and loopholes that have been able to be utilized in order for it to happen here in the United States. So, so that's how, just passed legislation like in the last year. It, so, it, it's still ongoing. So 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 how do we get around? How do you get around this if there's a federal law? If there's a federal law, why why can't you prosecute people under the federal law? I mean, why does D.C., why do these states need to pass this legislation if there's already a federal law prohibiting it? So because the district and on the district level and the state levels deal with health, child protection, education, uh, social and other services, and for, say first responders and service providers, that's why the states need to do something about it. The feds usually only get involved if you're crossing state lines. So state law fills the gaps left by federal laws. So it's supposed to be like a hand in glove kind of a thing. Well, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, that D.C. made it onto that list of people that have yet dealt with this because we're such a liberal jurisdiction. Yes. Where, you know, it, it really surprised me. Now, can I guess some of the other states that are on the what are the <laughs> other states? Are they Alabama, Mississippi? You know uh, what? Washington is one. What The state of Washington I is one. Really, another <laughs> yeah. liberal, pretty liberal state. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, the, like California has legislation, of course, but they, 
There's an organization in the United States that ranks the states by their legislation, outline it, and how strong is it. They gave California a C. They did? Yes. So I have a friend who's an assembly member, and I'm trying to work with her on let's tighten this up for the state of California. Because the state of California, is, you know, just because of our population, we have a large number. But what shocked me is they say that there are 51,000 females who have undergone or are at risk for female genital mutilation in the District Columbia, second only to New York, wow. your numbers. And think about your population versus the state of New York. Right. I mean, yeah, right, right. I mean, that, yeah. that tells – so the reason also that um, you had me on the program is because I'm actually testifying tomorrow – in front of the council of the district of Columbia about the legislation. And it's called the female genital mutilation prohibition act of 2021. And there, your legislation as I've read it is pretty lock solid. (laughs) It's pretty damn good. It's like, yeah, because what you mentioned about Mrs. Brown, knowing girls who have been taken so that's called vacation cutting, and that is illegal uh, federally. If someone knows that they're going to take them out of the United States to specifically have them cut, which has happened a lot, that's against the law. So if people get wind of this before it happens, we're obliged to report it to the authorities, and the authorities then can intervene and block the transporting of the minors. Because keep in mind, it's always minors. Yeah. It's minor yeah. girls. It's just crazy. And tell me how my friend Sheila Jackson Lee, isn't she the one that passed the national legislation? And she was, be, yeah, a Texas. big, yes, a big proponent of getting it on the books again and getting it to President Trump's desk. It was one of the quickest, they turned it around in about 12 months, getting it from start to finish to the Oval Office. It, it was pretty admirable what they did. Well, to me, a, 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 you know, I mean, it's just a barbaric thing as far as I'm concerned. But but it also, to me, just screams of, uh, you know, this is a way to subjugate women. This yeah. is a way to just another way to hold them down. And, and you know, uh, you know, like I say, it comes out of, you know, I, I certainly had some experience with an old world. I have to tell you the story, uh, uh, the old world attitude that, that girls should be ignorant and, and, and men should be, be educated about sex. My grandmother at 80 years old told me the facts of life when I was a teenager. And she did it by telling me a story about a lovely Italian woman who was just the greatest woman you ever met you know she made mother Teresa look like a slacker (laughs) but but unfortunately this was a friend of my grandmother's she couldn't go out in public anymore because of the immense shame that was brought upon her by her grandson who got a girl pregnant out of wedlock and so my older my old an older cousin was there with me and she looked at me and she said are you getting this Michael have sex, kill your grandmother. Did you get the <laughs> message? And I said, yeah, I got the message, you know. And, and we tell that story because it, we think it's cute, you know, that my, about my grandmother. But but that that's the way they believe. They believe that, you know, that 
oh, you had to do everything you could to to hold women down, and you were and you're right. It's women that perpetuate this. Which when my wife and I get in an argument about my misogynistic tendencies mm-hmm. as as a man, I say, don't forget, man, I didn't have a I didn't have a male teacher until I got into high school. Yeah. You know, if I'm a misogynist, if they taught me that little girls needed to be treated one way and I needed, it was women that taught me that. It wasn't men. That's interesting. And, and yeah, and, you know, we're always uh, somebody that that you admired and I admired, Dick Gregory. The first mm-hmm. time I ever heard him lecture was when I was in college. And that's what he said. He said, they all, they're, it's always about you perpetuating the injustice they they set it up so it works that way and so i think what you're doing maria is so important because even though it's uncomfortable to talk about the only way we're ever going to resolve this is if uh uh people stand up together well so interestingly when i was doing my dissertation and i knew that i wanted it to be about female genital mutilation which, by the way, I got pushback for a couple of years by some of my professors saying, yeah. it's not your problem. You're right. a white Western woman right. telling other cultures and countries to do something else. And it's largely over there, at, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, yes, but it's wrong. And they were like, yeah, but who are you? You're not one of them. So fast forward, I got this uh, scholarship uh, about a year into my education. And I used the funds to go to the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. The collaborator, Harvard Law graduate that I mentioned, he was going to be speaking. It was a two-day symposium. It was called Keeping the EU Intact. And they spoke about male circumcision. And they had one segment on female genital mutilation uh, out of the whole two days. And it was this woman from Somalia who, by the way, Somalia has a 98% cut rate. Wow. That's that's their percentage. So she spoke in front of us about her experience. She was seven when she got cut. She's written wow. a couple of books about it. I had already read her books. And, of course, you can't help but cry because she remembers it so vividly. And she came to the UK. Uh, what is it when you... Um, asylum she she came to seek asylum and um which you can do because if you come from a cut country and you're in peril of being cut that will take you generally um she had already been cut but afterwards i went up and introduced myself to her and i said i've been told that you know because i'm i present white that i it's none of my business and she said i don't care if you're purple it's child abuse and maria stop it yeah you do something about it and it was her words to me that empowered me to continue on to the dissertation. And that's what I did my research and studying on was using a theoretical orientation. Do you remember Kitty Genovese who was stabbed in New York in the early 60s? No, I don't. So it was this famous story because she was this young woman um, in her early 20s. She came home. She worked in the hospitality industry. She came home. It was after two o'clock. She got assaulted, stabbed, robbed, 
it, the, it, the encounter took about 30 minutes. There were dozens of people that yeah, no, watched it and heard it, and nobody did anything about it. Right. Nobody. This is 1964, New York. Right. So these two psychologists decided they better figure out why people get involved and why people don't. So they created something called the bystander intervention model. So I used that theory to see would it apply to getting people involved in female genital mutilation and the eradication thereof. And I did two podcasts and I solicited people that they were anonymous to me through Amazon Turk. That's how you get people. And they listened to one or the other. And then I tested them with this survey. And what I didn't expect to find, I found, was that just listening to the podcast, not a different podcast, was enough to get people not only to volunteer, but to donate money to eradicating it. Well, you know, I think that's it, right? It's like exactly the same thing that happened with me. When you told me about it for the show, I'm like, oh, come on, Maria. Oh, <laughs> uh, do we really want to talk about this? I don't want to talk about it. But then when I saw the numbers and I, I said to myself, oh, my God, this is hard. I, I, how can I not talk about it? How can I not, you know, do something to be involved. I would just feel terrible about myself if I didn't do that, especially as a father of two girls, you yeah. know, I, I would just, I would just feel awful. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And I remember, you know, uh, from my psychology courses, I guess in college or sociology, the Milgram experiment, experiments that were done at UCLA about authoritarianism yes. now, is similar. You know, they yes. they hooked a guy up to uh, they thought they, they thought they were electrocuting him, and mm -hmm. and yeah, and they and and some people just did it. They just mm -hmm. did it, you know, and only one person ever said. Look, I'm not doing this. I'm in the psychology building it. You see, I don't need to do this. You know, no, nobody else walked out. Lots of them because they were, you know, they were studying authoritarianism. And, and well, and to, uh, to your your memory is amazing, but um, because the person who was giving the the participants the directives had on a white coat, there yeah. was assumed authority that they yeah. were. Uh, professional a medical professional and that one better pay attention to the the you know go ahead and amp it up and the yeah. it, just so our listeners know so this was all staged it was faked that there was somebody who was allegedly being given electric bolts and they would be screaming at, on the other end and, they, and the participant could hear the screaming but what michael just said is most of the people complied with the orders that were given to them right yeah. right Right. And and it was a study because everybody wondered how you got a whole country like Germany. Yes. That was a democratic republic. How you got them all to follow that, you know, uh, uh, what they did in the Holocaust and without question. Uh, but uh, so yeah, I think I, that's a great I, approach you took. Go ahead. I, thank you. I went through my notes and the, you asked about aside from the District of Columbia, the 10 states are Alaska. Alabama, Hawaii, New Mexico, Nebraska, Montana, the state of Washington, Connecticut, and Maine. Well, you know what? They don't have I legislation have against it. Maine. I would have yeah. never guessed Connecticut. I yeah. would have never guessed uh, uh, Washington. Washington. 
Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of states. And New Mexico is pretty liberal, too. Yeah. You know, I have family in Alabama and where we keep on saying, God, please let them enter the 19th (laughs) century down there, you know, because, yeah, they're just. uh, So, Michael, can you tell our listeners what to expect tomorrow? Because I've never done anything like this. I've I've been given five minutes to speak on it, as everyone else has. And obviously, I'm going to talk from my uh, academic perspective and then my, you know, personal, passionate perspective. But what is the point? I I don't know how many witnesses there are, but, but, you know, people like you get five minutes. Then uh, they would uh, listen to your testimony. And then who's ever on the committee... um, I don't know that the whole committee will be there or just some of the committee members will be there, but they'll, they'll reserve time to ask you questions and they'll probably ask you questions about your testimony. Uh, and that's pretty much how it goes. And then at the end of the, uh, you know, at, at, at the, the end of all the questioning and uh, testimony, they will vote on whether to pass the legislation or not. Now, when they vote, that's a first vote. There has to be a second vote by the full committee, which will come later. But the second vote, in most cases, is just perfunctory. You know, it's uh, unless there's somebody that would have some kind of serious objection on the committee and wanted to open, reopen debate, uh, the second vote is usually, you know, more like a rubber stamp. So, Tomorrow, the legislation may very well pass, but it won't become law until there's a second vote that moves on to the mayor and the mayor signs it into law. I guarantee you, knowing Muriel Bowser, there will be no problem with her signing this into law. She's very much a feminist, uh, very much cares about uh, uh, women, especially uh um, the ones in District Columbia, and she herself has a daughter. So I'm sure that that you know she'll she'll sign it. And uh, I would say this is just going to be a you know it's going to be a good day for you, and it's good. And this legislation will most likely pass. So and how many uh, are on the city council in the District of Columbia? There are 13 members of the city council. There are 12 council members and then there's a chairman of the council because this bill is being introduced by six members right so you've got six members probably all of whom i i I can't remember who i have all of their names so it's but elisa silverman brianne uh, naidu vincent gray mary che christina henderson and brooke pinto yeah and they're they're I don't think all of them are on that committee, but several of them are on the committee, and then there are several others. I mean, when you have six co-sponsors, you need seven votes to pass the legislation. So you've already got six people. Right. Uh, uh, So all you need to do is convince one more, and I don't think it's a hard sell. Does the mayor get to vote? No, the mayor does not get to vote, but the mayor gets to ultimately sign, just like the chief executive in you know like the president off on legislation sure. 
that's the same power the mayor has locally. She can sign it. Now, if she doesn't sign it, that doesn't mean that the legislation dies. It just means, just like in the federal case, that it goes back to the council for reconsideration, and they can override her veto. She can veto the legislation, basically. But they, again, just like Congress, can override that veto. So uh, that's Because where I live, the mayor is a member of the council. Yeah, no, that's not that's not the case here. In um, the District of Columbia. No, district. Okay. No. So you're right. Six is a good start. <laughs> it's a great start, you know. Because they all signed the, what I have in front of me is the bill with their names on it, that they, they're the co-sponsors of well, it. Well, obviously, all six of them are going to support it. So you yes. only need one other person. And you've got several other women on the council. Um that, that you didn't name, and uh, I'm sure they would. I'm sure that they will sign on. People like Anita Bonds, and and you know, I, I'm sure that other people uh, will also sign on. I think this is this is legislation that may very well pass uh, by unanimous consent. You know that that you may get everybody on the council to support it, all all 13 votes, and. Uh, um, and Which I think this could be a watershed moment for the other 10 states then once you do this as the District of Columbia. I, I mean, they say about California, whatever we do blows east. Well, I would imagine what you do blows west. So, Well, you know, the thing is about the, the District of Columbia is that you really, uh, when you have things here, you get a national spotlight. You know, yes. now the people in Alabama don't give a damn what we do in, in Washington <laughs> D.C. I guarantee you, it's probably it it probably doesn't help you any to have it passed in D.C. But but yes, you you will it will get it will get more attention than it would if it, if, if it passed in Nebraska or or you know one of the other states. I think, uh, and you'll see it. I'm sure the post will write something about it. And, and you know, we have, it's important here too, because we have such a large immigrant population. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure what, you know, besides Somalia, I bet we have a, a, a more than our fair share of Somalians in Washington, D.C. We have, you know, we have embassies from almost every country. And we, uh, um, you know, we certainly have a large immigrant population. That's why Mrs. Brown knows some of these people, because her school has a large immigrant population. It's in the suburbs of Washington. Uh, So, yeah, anything you do here. This is one of the reasons our gun laws are always attacked, because if you want to make you know, if you want to make hay or you want to get uh, some money from the NRA and you're running for um, Congress in, in Texas, well, Texas already has very strong gun laws. Mm-hmm. But you come to Washington and, and uh, or, or they have pro-gun laws, I should say. Well, you can come to Washington where we have strong gun laws and attack the gun laws in Washington, D.C. It gets national attention and, you know, and then the NRA gives you a pat on the back. But, uh, you know, our delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, for years spent an inordinate amount of her time just protecting district gun laws until a a case came before the Supreme Court. Heller, the Heller case came before the Supreme Court, and the court decided that the gun laws in the district only had to be changed because they were too strict. Uh, 
But, um, you know, so they have been changed. But, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons that, that we get attacked on so many fronts. Well, you know, I'm so glad that you came to talk about this uh, today, Maria, but I can't let you leave without talking about a few other things. So I don't hope, I hope you don't mind. And one of Not them is your expertise on how social media is affecting us politically um, in America. You know, we see now, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a casual bystander when I look at this stuff. But, you know, I don't care what your political position is about anything. It seems to me that you can go on the Internet and find somebody that agrees with you. Correct. And 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 this and and they don't have to be they don't have to be the least bit authoritative. You know, that 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 you can. And I think most people, rather than searching for the truth, actually search for people that agree with them. Correct. You know, for for uh, I don't know what you call that, but for, you know, for validation of their feelings. Well, it's a psychological term and it's called confirmation bias. So Uh you seek that which, you know. Yeah. And, And yes. And then they don't feel so alone. They also don't feel like they're crazy, like other people might suggest they are, because so-and-so says that, and this group says that, and Facebook here says that, and then suddenly they get emboldened and empowered because, yeah, I knew that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they have, you know, I say that about, again, when I, when I, when I think about the prejudice and stuff that existed in my family uh, in my mother's family, you know, Italian immigrants, they were Italian immigrants. They believed every stereotype about everybody. And they had a story that would prove it. An yes. anecdote, you know, that uh, all the Irish were drunks. And and they know that for a fact, because my grandmother was on a bus one day and she saw an Irish guy and he was drunk. You know, and that's right. all the that's all the proof she needed. She didn't need to see any statistics. She didn't need to see, you know, as much as the Italians drank wine. You know, they they, it, you know, it was that sort of thing. So I find that really scary. And now with Ukraine, you know, they're talking about uh, the Soviet Union. I'm Soviet Union. I'm so old. They're talking <laughs> about Russia. Uh, attack doing cyber attacks yep. in the United States, and and not only trying to shut things down, but also trying to pass false information. Yes. Now, or as they call it, disinformation. Disinformation, and I I don't know that that would have much of an impact in the United States, but it might have an impact in Ukraine, where where there is a you know there's a there's always been a tie to to Russia. But, um, well, but even them saying that Zelensky is a neo-Nazi, who's a Jewish man? He's Jewish. Yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, it's it like, really? <laughs> doesn't matter. Well, you know what? I've, I've had, you know, people believe what they want to believe. I mean, right. I, I've, I've gotten arguments about Donald Trump where I've said, you know, the man got the man not only talked about grabbing women inappropriately, but he did it to a gossip columnist. Mm-hmm. And, that, and people say, oh, he never said that. What? Really? 
They have it on tape. Yeah, they I was say, a, we've heard no, the soundbite. <laughs> right. No, he never said that. Or when he went to the when he went to the uh, cemetery uh, in Europe mm -hmm. and, and called uh, dead veterans uh, suckers and losers. No, mm -hmm. he, he never said that. That was somebody else. He never said that. So, you know, it doesn't even matter sometimes or many times when you put up um, the truth. You know, the truth, yeah. Because there's <laughs> the truth shall set up. you free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I read in the paper today that a Trump disciple, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, mm -hmm. just uh, appeared before CPAC yesterday, and you know that that they're very powerful mm -hmm. uh, uh, in in promoting candidates. And he said, you know, that that people need to shield themselves with God against the liberals. Hmm. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. I don't, I don't, and, and people believe that. I mean, I don't get that there are people out there that believe that Jesus would have, would have wanted a gun, that Jesus would have spent his time telling you what was wrong with other people. I mean, I, I just don't get it as a Christian. But they use this kind of rhetoric and this really fires people up. There's some speculation that he may be trying to go after Trump in the prime. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, but I, on that end, I know you were raised Catholic, uh, that the Pope, with his huge sciatica issues, physically got in a car and went to the embassy for Rush, of Russia out of the Holy See to tell them to please, you've got to reconsider. Uh, that's an unprecedented uh, unheard of and well, that's I, how deeply he cares well i gotta tell you something i became an episcopal years ago i converted but i love this pope I Me love too. The popes. Me yeah too. all the popes that it has been my uh i i, I like john paul too but mm -hmm. but this guy yeah this guy takes the cake i think he's he, so well he's a jesuit right and so and they're known for their free thinking and their yeah. liberalism and yeah. in their academic excellence and all of that and i'm like he's just got it all <laughs> yeah he's well, the one that said so, homosexuals deserve to be loved too <laughs> well like, you know what <laughs> you, 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 you um you talk about the Jesuits and all that's true, but you know, uh, Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit university run by the Jesuits for, for, for years, uh, they're also just coming to uh, grips right now with things that they did during slavery, which were horrible. Mm -hmm. So even if you're, you know, even if you're a liberal, don't think that you're not uh, subjected sometimes to doing uh, cruel and, 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 yeah. And, well, uh, and then there's the human condition at the end of the day. Yeah. We're filled there, with flaws. It really is. And it seems so simple to me, Maria, as a father. Now, you're a parent. Mm -hmm. It seems so simple to me. If I had, you know, a very short time left and I knew it and you came to me and said, what can I do for you, Michael? What, you know, we've been good friends and I just want to know, you know, what I can, what I can do to help. I would say to you, take care of my children. If my children ever need something that you can give them, please give it to them. If, if, if you know, if they need encouragement or whatever, keep an eye on my children. 
And and don't you think that's what God says to us? Take mm-hmm. care of each other. Right. Right. That's what I yeah. want. I don't want, you know, I don't care how much money you have or, or, you know, what other things you do in life. But what I really care about is that you take care of my children. Well, don't you think that that seems to be what the world is doing with Ukraine against Russia? It feels I, like we're really getting our act together as a globe. Yes, and, and I'm surprised, and I think the Russians are surprised too. And you know that we have to be realistic about Ukraine. There's only so much we can do, right? Because it's inside the Russian sphere of influence. We can't send in American troops uh, in in mass and start World War Three. Uh, so there's, you know, so we have to handle the situation delicately. And I think that everybody's doing a pretty good job of it. The world is coming together. NATO, which is often seen as feckless, is actually standing up. And I think that, yeah, I think it's a really, really positive thing. And 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 I don't know how much it'll be interesting for people like you to take a look at how much social media will play in all this. but Well, it already I, is with Zelensky yeah. doing his videos from <laughs> Kiev, right? Staying put, right. hunkering down, showing people that, and he's got on a t-shirt and, you know, like a three-day scuff of a beard and, and you know, not the suit and tie that he usually wears. And huh. I, I think he is charming and endearing and enthralling to everyone. That he's well, not leaving, I mean, he's not fleeing. He's he's hunkered down and it's motivating people. And that's all through social media. Right. And, you know, that's a whole we're we're on a whole new great frontier in that in that regard that we're bringing the world closer together. You know, it's funny. uh, I read an article not long ago uh, when I was doing some research about my ancestry. But the majority of Americans never knew about the Revolutionary War. They they never it was fought in a couple of states and most Americans didn't even know that it happened until after it happened. And we're talking about a war that went on for several years. Mm. And and, you know, then during the Second World War, you know, you you fast forward 150 years. My mother in my attic, I have every front page of The New York Times during the Second World War that my mother kept when my father was in Europe. And that's how you found out about things. Right. You found out about the Battle of the Bulge a week after it happened. You know, now we find out about it instantly. Now there would be people at the battle that would be sending you pictures, which you're doing in Ukraine, you know, and we can see the resistance that's going on in Ukraine. You know, they showed pictures this morning of uh, Ukrainian soldiers with automatic weapons standing next to people with shotguns Mm -hmm. that, you know, regular, right. Citizens who have just come out of their house and said, we're not going to, we're not going to take Which is why they're saying Kiev hasn't fallen yet, is that of the organic uprising that has taken them all by surprise. It's just brilliant. I wish them well. And here in Southern California, there's all kinds of solidarity with Ukraine. And I don't know what our immigrant population is, or it's just that we're, we got big hearts here, but it's, it it just, it's tear inducing as far as I'm concerned. I think it's lovely. Well, you definitely got 
big hearts. And there's somebody from California that needs to explain to me why you people have to pay five dollars for gasoline. We're paying five thirty a gallon. Yeah, while the rest now, of us are paying three fifty. I don't. Pay. Yeah, literally. You know, I, 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 it's like we have it out for the people of California for, <laughs> yeah, for some I'm, reason. I'm we sure we want to take their water. We don't want to give them water. We don't. <laughs> we don't want. We want to charge a mixture for gas. But yeah, I would say last night that I was very moved at the opening of. Uh, Saturday Night Live. Yes. Did you Handled see that? Brilliantly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and for our listeners that didn't see it, they had a Ukrainian choir from New York City, which I assume sang the national anthem. I don't know. If, Me you know, too. Yeah, they did. They say they say they sang it in in, in their language their and language. in their yeah. traditional uh, garb. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was, but yeah. it was very, very moving. You know, they 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 uh, they just sung their hearts out, and and uh, um, yeah, I think people in America are moved, and I think people in Europe are moved, and you know, and you know, my wife again, Pat, uh, has been to Lithuania. She has family in Lithuania. Mm. Uh, her father has cousins and stuff in, in Lithuania. And, um, um, you know, she's been there and the Lithuanians are scared to death, I and, bet. you know, and all the other countries uh, that, that, that once were. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, the Hungarians seem to be rolling over, but the rest of them, the Poles and the and the and the uh, Lithuanians and um, other people, yeah, they're staying yeah, strong, yeah. which is great. Yeah, they're staying strong. And so, I just want to say, as a, as a, an aside, that I can't stop my relationship with your District of Columbia and the lifelong learning. Tomorrow, I start a new program in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And it's through the National Diversity Collaborative, which is in Washington, D.C. And it's their inaugural program for, you know, DEI and A. And um, that starts tomorrow. So my learning continues and my relationship with you in the District of Columbia continues. <laughs> so, Well, thank God. That means you're going to have to come back and visit. And that means, you know, Mrs. Brown and I are going to have to take you out to dinner and, you know, and get to see you. And we'll be happy to do that. Yeah, we. I also I don't know if I told you, but I, I got married on Christmas Day. And no! Yes. And my uh, husband has a daughter in Maryland. And I was like, I think it looks like we're going to go to D.C. I'm going to have to testify. Wow. And he goes, great. And I said, I've got so many people that I want to see. Plus, I'll get to meet my you know, professors and stuff. And he goes, and we'll go see my daughter. I was like, great. <laughs> so when Where they said it's all being uh, outside of Bethesda. Oh, yeah. Well, in the neighborhood then. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that would yeah. be great. That would yeah. be great. And we'd so, love to see you. And before I leave, we're out of time here. And let me just say, Maria Sanchez, shadow politics has turned out to be a big deal. And 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 a lot of the credit for that goes to you. Oh, so right. thank you so much for, for your years of service. And thanks for your continuing service to humanity. This is thank a you. great thing. I thank plan you. on testifying tomorrow. I'm going to try to get on the witness list first thing in the morning. And I think they'll probably let me on. And I'm just going to, 
uh, add a few Thank words you. because I think we all have to be concerned about this. And so um, we leave you with this song, as we always do. <clears throat> and this is for Maria and for all the women out there that are fighting uh, for justice for women. Uh, here's a song by Rachel Platten called Fight Song. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thank, Thank you, Maria. I'll Thank talk you to you tomorrow. Okay. All Bye right. Now. Bye. Like a small boat on the ocean, sending big waves into motion. Like how a single word can make a